0: Welcome to Green City, a podcast focused on sustainability. I'm your host, Lene Marty Henson. We invite you to listen in on our conversations for positive change. It is my hope that we can all come away with something that resonates within our own lives and inspires us to action within our own communities. Let's start where we are and find ways to work together to create more connected, more vibrant, and indeed, more sustainable communities. Join us each week as we learn from each other. We continue our series on water with our second show this week, focusing on the impact water has on our economy. In this four-part series, we are holding discussions on the many essential aspects and impacts of this limited resource that we critically depend on for our everyday living. Alicia Vasto, the Water Program Associate Director of the Iowa Environmental Council is my co-host for this series. And joining us today to talk about water and the economy is Sylvia Secchi. Dr. Secki is a professor in the Department of Geographical and Sustainability Sciences, as well as a senior research fellow with the Public Policy Center at the University of Iowa. Thank you both for joining us this morning.
1: Delighted to be here.
0: Thank
2: you for having us.
0: So, Dr. Secki, let's begin with you giving, in your own words, a brief bio about your journey to this point.
1: Yes, so it's quite serendipitous actually that I have spent um, a large part of my life and most of my adult life in Iowa. I was born in Italy and in Sardinia on an island. So I'm a saltwater person. uh, And I did my undergraduate degree in economics in Italy at Bocconi University. And then I uh, went to the United Kingdom to do my master's degree in agricultural economics at the University of Reading. And while I was there, my advisor, uh, the department chair, told me that there was an opportunity to um, go study at Iowa State University and they had assistantships. And so I applied and was accepted and so flew across the Atlantic. Um, And I was a student at Iowa State for four years, graduated in 2000. And then I worked there as a staff scientist at the Center for Agriculture and Rural Development for eight years. Then I moved to Illinois, and I was in Illinois at Southern Illinois University until uh, 2017. And now I'm back in Iowa at another uh, region's institution. And I've always, since I've been in the United States, I've always worked on matters related to the environmental impact of agriculture and focused on the intensive agricultural system of the Upper Mississippi River Basin. So I am in a geographical and sustainability science department because I work in very much in interdisciplinary settings Mm -hmm. um, with colleagues from hydrology, environmental engineering, uh, but also the humanities and, uh, you know, other uh, disciplines to truly understand the complex nature of our relationship with water and how it affects the economy, the environment and social interactions and social networks.
0: Very good. And before we dive into the discussion, um, we would like you to share, you have a wonderful quote at the bottom of your email signature. Um, So I'll read the quote. It says, it is especially the social sciences, economics, sociology, and political science, which if prosecuted with vigor, reveal answers which are unpalatable to special interests. T.W. Schultz. Give us the story behind that quote.
1: So that is one of my favorite stories as an Iowa State graduate and as a social scientist uh, of all times. That quote comes straight from a letter that T.W. Schultz wrote to the Des Moines Register in 1943 as he resigned. And the title of that letter was Iowa State College, that was Iowa State's name at the time, Mm Iowa State College and Social Science, institution must serve general interest of society, resigning department headsets. And the story that, uh, the reason why Theodore Schultz was resigning from Iowa State, has the, had to do with the fact that his team um, in the Department of Economics, which is where I got my degree, had written a pamphlet, pamphlet number five, essentially arguing that It was in the interest of the public to stop subsidizing butter and creating impediments in the sale of margarine during the war, because there were other uses for that fat that were better, and people could just use margarine that was more readily available. After he wrote that pamphlet, there was a lot of pushback from the ag lobby, um, and uh, the the, the president of Iowa State College, President Freely, um got involved and uh, the milk producers were very upset. The Iowa Farm Bureau uh, president was very, very upset. And essentially, uh, even though the, I, I want to note that the pamphlet did not use public money. This was money coming from the Rockefeller Foundation because Schultz was not, um, was pretty savvy that way. And so he did not want to get uh, pushback on that. So what Schultz did is he uh, revised the pamphlet, not substantively. There was a way for President Friley to save face. And then he said, uh, but I'm done with you guys. Bye-bye. And so he went on to the University of Chicago, and then he went on to win the Nobel Prize for economics. And he, um, I, I particularly like the end to this story, which is he received the, the announcement that he had won the Nobel Prize in Ames, where he was there giving a guest lecture. And so to me, this story really exemplifies the challenges we face uh, in the land-grant system, in the public university system as a whole, in, uh, uh, over, um, in, um, in pursuing science for the greater public good. And so the issues that we're going to talk about today are really germane to my quote, because we have powerful interests who really um, benefit from a distorted narrative of what water is about, water and the economy, right? The environment and the economy. And that Schultz quote always reminds me that uh, there's nothing new under the sun, right? And that we've fought this battle before and we need to be ready uh, for in the interest of the public that pays our salary and sponsors our research. uh, We need to be able, we need to be willing to speak out Um, and and say what the science tells us, and and, uh, be uh, vocal about what the science is, you know, and I I often get um, uh, this, oh, people say, oh, you're advocating for things. Well, if you don't say anything, you are advocating for the status quo, and you're Mm -hmm. advocating with your silence very loudly for um, special interests to keep dominating the conversation. So, you know, that's that's kind of like where where coming back to Iowa. Uh, this quote has uh, has been a little bit of a lodestar for me in, in, in how I conduct myself.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'll make sure to put that on the website along with the blog so those who want to review what it says again can do that. So thank you for that story. That's wonderful. So in your work, you have spent years advocating for this intersection and mutual dependence of both the environment, in the case today that we're talking about water specifically, and the economy. And so give us an overview why water quality and quantity are so critical to our economy in Iowa, in the country, and around the world.
1: So, you know, in my training uh, as an environmental economist and an agricultural economist, one of the things that we really emphasize is that We face the problem that water quantity and clean water, even if you have water when it's not clean, are what we call non-market goods. So we don't have prices for them. And so what tends to happen in an economic system like ours is we produce more of the goods that use up or destroy these resources, Mm -hmm. and we don't take into account the costs. We call these external costs. That our activity cause on these resources, right? So, for example, if uh, you know our neighbors to the west, if they overuse water to irrigate corn in Nebraska, uh, and therefore cause problem for drinking water, uh, for um, uh, you know, for all sorts of uh, other groundwater-related activities, uh, mm-hmm. they they don't really pay a, a price for that. There is no consequences. Mm-hmm. And here in Iowa, historically, we have had a huge problem with water quality, right? And so uh, farmers uh, apply fertilizer and manure uh, the way that is the most convenient to them, for them, without any regard to the costs that we, as the rest of Iowans, there's about 3% of Iowans who are farmers, right? So 97% of Iowans bear those costs in the form of higher drinking water treatment, if they get water from a, a treatment facility. About 10% of Iowans actually rely on well water. And for them, there is no remedy that comes from the outside. They have themselves to th- take upon themselves to test that water um, and treat that water on their own. Yeah. So those who do not, they bear those costs directly in health costs. Right. And on top of that, you know, there are other costs that I think in Iowa we substantially and consistently overestimate. For example, why does everybody go to Okoboji in the summer? Well, that's because it's about the only lake that's clean in Iowa, right? And so we bear costs in terms of our reduced recreational opportunities, and these costs disproportionately affect people who can't travel because they don't have the money, they don't have the the leisure. Um, and so what we have is we have a state in which, you know, I, when I was at Iowa State, it was kind of funny because all the professors would be uh, talking about their trips to the boundary waters in the summer, right? Mm-hmm. They would all leave the state, right? Because there's no clean water to recreate in, in Iowa in the summer. And if you have money, that's where you're going to go. And at my house, we make a joke. It's like there's a six hour, right? Limit. We, you can't find clean water within six hours of Iowa City. You know, you got to go to the Ozarks, you got to go up to Minnesota, you got to go to the Great Lakes, you got to go somewhere else, right? And, and so that is a real, real cost in terms of quality of life that I think actually has a lot of consequences that we're reckoning with in terms of our young people not wanting to stay in the state after they graduate. Uh, you know, people joke half of the, the Twin Cities is Iowans. You know, mm-hmm. why is that? You know, it's not just because it's a different urban environment. It's because there are other recreational opportunities. And I think we're, we're the whole narrative that we are, um, you know, the, the farmers are stewards of the land and farming as the backbone of Iowa is really contrary to the evidence that we have and the the state we're living in now in the 21st century. Yeah. Great, well,
2: kind of pulling more on that thread, Sylvia, um, talking about farmers and kind of the prevailing narrative, um, I'm wondering you know, a little bit more about what you've learned about those discussions that are being had or the discussions that you've had around water quality and land use with the agricultural community.
1: Yeah, I think that there is a, uh, there is a really um, formidable disconnect between perception and reality. Um, Still, and I think this is the biggest problem we face. And I think that's where I see my role, not necessarily advocating for a specific solution, but bringing back the conversation on the facts, right? So uh, the Iowa nutrient reduction strategy is very good at saying, oh, we've put in all these money in these practices. Uh, And the point is not spending more money on practices. The point is on achieving water quality, right? The taxpayers who funded these practices don't necessarily care about the input, which is what we put on the ground, right? The, the terraces, the, the buffer strips, they care about the output, which is the quality of the water. And there is no way uh, that people can argue that the water quality has been getting better. We are just coming out of, the, of a, a terrific event in the upper Iowa River where we had amazingly high concentrations of nitrates in one of the streams that is one of the better ones in northwest, Northeast Iowa. And why is that? It's because we're farming using excessive fertilizer and manure application rates. There are really no reasons why uh, farmers shouldn't do that. And we're still getting this story that farmers are doing the best they can. Well, maybe that's not true because if they were doing the best they could, the water would be better. Or would be moving in the right direction, and so my uh, my my main uh, takeaway from uh, my conversations with uh, producers and, and uh, producer groups is that uh, we really need to find the the, the we, we we need to speak about reality. You know, we need to talk about what is happening. Uh, you know, in our rivers, what's happening in our lakes? Because to keep bringing back the conversation to oh, we built thirty wetlands. You know, thirty wetlands are. A, uh, um, a, a drop in a bucket when we have 24 million pigs at any time in the state of Iowa and virtually unregulated K foods, and so I think we need to start by uh, uh, by reaching some kind of common understanding of what is going on. And uh, you know, my my one of my kids uh, came up with the term propaganda, uh, which actually existed <laughs> beforehand. But I feel like in Iowa, a lot of our communications about what's going on are not Um, honest communications, they are propaganda. And that's why we can't move on to find a solution because we can't even agree what the problem is, which is, you know, something that happens often in contentious uh, matters. But uh, I I don't think the industry is doing itself many favors by keeping denying uh, what we can all see and smell on a regular basis.
0: Right. So I'm going to jump around with these questions, but one thing I'm really curious about as someone who's not working in this directly, is like you two are, but um, and you can both give insight on this, but is the long-term economic sustainability of our state and our land ever part of the discussion when water quality is being discussed amongst our state legislators? I mean, do they is that brought into these discussions about water quality because in my mind there has to be that long-term thinking and i'm wondering if it's even
1: there alicia what do you think you go first
2: (laughs) yeah um i i think you know i think that that conversation is not being had (laughs) i don't think it's being had enough i think that there's a lot of conversations about how do we you know support young farmers um but we're not talking about the rest of the economy as a whole and and how much water quality um, has an impact on that so like sylvia said before young people um, moving out of state and and not wanting to come back um i know a few of them myself um, you know, people that want to go and, and see opportunities elsewhere and have things to do um, in their spare time, um, you're not finding that here in Iowa. And I think that that is not enough of the discussion that's being had around the state. You know, there's a lot of talk about work- workforce retention and recruitment, but you're still not getting at those core issues of the environment has a big role in that. Um, You're talking about things like broadband internet or, you know, and and some of those things are important, but um, there are a lot of those environmental issues that are at the very heart of why people don't want to come back to this state. And that's kind of, I think, a taboo subject. And that's unfortunate because it's it's so crucial. Right. Right.
1: From my perspective, I can tell you that uh, we we did some work here with um, uh, colleagues at the University of Iowa. And what we found was that because we have relied so heavily on federal subsidies, subsidized crop insurance, direct um, commodity payment, emergency payments, essentially what has happened is we have not really felt the brunt of the unsustainability of our system, right? Mm -hmm. What's happening is money coming from the federal government is propping up a really unsustainable system. And so we don't really see how broken it is, right? So- the, the, the discussion, I think, is not going to uh, move very, um, very fast or very far until we realize that this system depends for its sustainability on an unsustainable approach, which is to keep milking the federal government for subsidies. Iowa is uh, was in 2019, which is the last year data was available, the biggest recipient of federal subs- uh, subsidies agricultural subsidies in the Mm -hmm. nation, over $2 billion. So I don't call that system sustainable. What we're doing is we are paying farmers to grow crops that pollute our water, and then we're paying them to fix the problem that the subsidies have created. Mm -hmm. And so it's a vicious circle where we're spending taxpayer money to in part create the problem and then fix it without thinking about the unintended consequences. As Alicia was saying, we talk about young farmers, but you know all these rising land prices are really pricing young farmers out unless they have family who farms and can uh, leave land to them. And so it's becoming harder and harder to enter farming from the outside. And we, I don't think anyone here is really thinking long-term. And again, I think again, it's because the narrative is not there. If we don't a- admit to ourselves that what we're doing is not sustainable, mm-hmm. we're not gonna work towards a, a, a solution to fix the issue.
0: Right. Do you have a next question, Alicia, or what do you think? Yeah. Is a fascinating discussion to me. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I think I uh, would like to turn to the discussion around CAFOs, um, concentrated animal feeding operations. For those that don't know, um, and and I think that this ties in well to kind of the uh, narrative around young farmers and how to get into farming and um, having that opportunity. Um, because CAFOs are, are brought up as a way to make a living in, in agriculture these days in kind of what, what is already a broken system. But um, Sylvia, I'd like to hear um, from your perspective about the trade-offs um, with CAFOs and both water quality and quantity um, and the economy and kind of some of those false promises <laughs> that they have for our rural economies.
1: Yeah, just you know to make sure that the listeners are all kind of like understand the, the scope of the problem, Iowa is the biggest producer of pigs in the United States. We produce about one third of all the pigs uh, produced in the, in the United States and 15% of the eggs. So we're we're first in the nation on both. And the reason why that is, is because CAFO production is virtually unregulated in Iowa. And when um, counties started to uh, try and... Um, uh, assert power and, and say, hey, we want to have some local control, essentially the state legislature took that away. And so there is very little opportunity for local communities to oppose the construction of CAFOs. Um, and so the reason why we have so many CAFAs, uh is not because they are a um, Uh, they provide an opportunity for young farmers. Again, you you can see how this story is really being twisted to serve a certain purpose and certain narrative purpose. Mm -hmm. We have CAFOs because we allow uh, people who operate them to uh, impose the environmental costs on the rest of us pretty much without any consequence. So in all the regulations in Iowa, besides the, the, the building regulations, uh, all the, the regulations regarding manure application and, and the monitoring of that manure application and, and the maintenance of the structures to hold that manure, they are some of the worst in the nation, if not the worst. And they're very, very poorly enforced. And so the, the reason why uh, farmers, young farmers um, uh, get into CAFAS is uh, one, because the... Uh, you know, it's 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 uh it's easy to do that given that they don't have to pay the environmental uh, costs associated with that production method, um, and two because we don't really have a rural development strategy in Iowa. Let's face it, that's the real problem. That for the last thirty years, the last forty years, uh, since the farm crisis and before, they the the rural development strategy has been. Let's do more of the same and hope that the result is different. And the result is not going to be different. With this kind of policies, we're going to see more consolidation, more people living leaving rural counties. We've just seen the results of the latest census, right? Rural counties are hemorrhaging people. And that's because this kind of farming does not require people, does not attract people we want to attract in rural areas and does not, does not increase economic activities in rural areas. And so I think this is a real, uh, you know, I would turn that story around. They can only do that because of a failure of our state and local policies to create environments where we can have a more diverse farming system that truly supports a diverse agriculture that's also not forget pretty much all Iowa farmers are white. One in 200 isn't white, right? And so we, we have, we, we're continuing to do more of the same, telling the same story that already wasn't true and it is becoming even less and less true. Um, and I, I, again, I, I, I think that it's really important that we um, look at the fact on the grounds and we're honest about what this kind of lack of strategy uh, you know, sold with the nice ribbons about, you know, I once being, want farmers feeding the world and that kind of stuff, you know, um, uh, is, is doing to our state. Yeah. Yeah. So this, this happens a lot
0: it, right in the middle of our discussion. I'm going to have to close it down because we are out of time, but we definitely need to talk about this more because I'm writing frantically um, all the great insight that you have both been sharing today. And I thank you so much for, for joining and participating in this conversation and for doing everything you do every day to, to work on a big issue that we kind of tiptoe around. And so I'm going to do the shout out to our listeners and say, you know, learn what you can. Go check out both the Iowa Environmental Council's website. They've got lots of great facts there, as well as University of Iowa's website, because there's a lot of research that will tell you what's really going on, and and we need to not be afraid to have these discussions. So thank you both for being here today. Thanks to our listeners. Check out your green portal to see the um, blog and also listen to the podcast. And thanks for all that you continue to do, both of you. Thanks for
2: having me. Thank you very much.
0: That's all for this edition of Green City. I'm Lene Marty henson and I hope you continue to listen in on these conversations focused on the broad realm of sustainability. I truly believe that we go further faster when we come together to have real dialogue inspiring us toward practical solutions. Let's continue to learn from each other how best to nurture this precious planet we call home. Thanks for listening. We are truly grateful.